0: Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud platform. Hey, everybody! Welcome to episode 50. Yes, we've made it to 50 episodes. Uh, not quite two years. Uh, we have to wait for two more episodes, but yeah, episode 50. This has been a real, real fun endeavor. Actually, we've had a lot of fun. Uh, we had some fantastic guests in the previous, previous episodes. Uh, really enjoyed doing this, and I think you know, based on the feedback that we get from from uh, people who listen, uh, it's doing a you know, good service out there as well. So uh, yeah, fifty episodes. Who would have thought it? And this week we actually have the full gang here. Uh, it's myself, Michael. We have Gladys. We have Sarah and Mark. And we don't have a guest this week. It's a little bit different. Mark is going to talk about the Microsoft Security Reference Architecture, and because it's just the four of us, uh, we actually have no news. Well, in actual fact, we weren't going to have any news, but something popped up that I really can't help talking about, uh, mainly because it's in uh, a product that's near and dear to my heart using a feature that is near and dear to my heart. And that is that Cosmos DB now has Always Encrypted, is now generally available. Uh, So Always Encrypted is client-side encryption, basically the same technology that's used by SQL Server Always Encrypted. So the client has the keys, uh, the encryption and decryption is done at the client. Uh, You can do a subset of queries um, against encrypted data without decrypting it. So you're probably familiar with encryption of data at rest, encryption of data on the wire. Well, this is encryption of data while it's in use. So it's fantastic technology. I'm a huge fan of it. Um, It puts no strain on the server at all because all the crypto is done by the client. And uh, Cosmos DB also doesn't have the keys either. So in the case of for example, you know, heaven forbid, but you a know, compromise of Cosmos DB or your installation of it, the attacker doesn't have the keys. So great to see that. Congratulations to the Cosmos DB teams. And in fact, in a few weeks, we'll actually have the Cosmos DB folks uh, here to talk in depth about some of the other stuff that's coming out as well as talk about the Always Encrypted. So now that we've got my little... Uh, my little news item out of the way, uh, let's, let's turn our attention to to Mark, who's going to talk to us about Microsoft Security Reference Architecture, otherwise known as the MCRA. I would say welcome, Mark, but that's kind of not really needed. Um, so Mark, you want to just sort of lead us through and get us started with uh, with MCRA? So yeah, I want to actually talk about
1: uh, MCRA, uh, Cyber Reference Architecture, but also the CAF Secure methodology, because they're kind of two parts of the same whole. Um, So we've been spending a lot of time in recent months and, quite frankly, years, you know, working out a lot of the details, you know, based on working with customers, our own IT organization, et cetera, on, you know, what does a good end-to-end security program look like, and what does a good end-to-end security architecture look like? And as it turns out, it's not just one diagram. Um, So the original version of that reference architecture, probably, I don't know, five, six years ago, uh, the thing started. You know, it was just a single diagram that had all of Microsoft's capabilities on it and, you know, kind of how they logically connected together and grouped together, et cetera. And so that's sort of like that core capabilities one. That one's still there, still getting updated. And then um, what we found over time is what we had to develop sort of okay, well, how does the SOC or the security operations team, you know, and all the tools related to XDR and SIM and, and threat intelligence and all that, how do those all connect with SOAR and UEBA and all those kind of things? SOAR is security operations. Orchestration, automation, and remediation, and uh, UEBA is behavior analytics, uh, user and entity behavior analytics. But like, how does how does all that work together? How does um, you know uh, modern user access using zero trust principles? How does that all connect together? Um, and you know, what are all the native security capabilities in Azure? So we ended up answering a lot of questions with what became a bunch of complicated diagrams. And so the cybersecurity reference architectures is actually plural, sometimes forget to say the S, um, with a bunch of those diagrams pulled together and a, a few other kind of key highlights. And then the CAF secure methodology is sort of that you know, slightly higher level that's more of like a CIO, CISO, and directs kind of look at the world, as opposed to sort of an architect, technical manager, you know, a technical director kind of view. So the CAF secure methodology is really about that. What does an end-to-end security program look like, and how does it plug into um, the bigger picture, uh, business and cloud adoption and digital transformation, all the other stuff that's happening that you know security is trying to keep up
0: with and keep safe. So I've read quite a you know, over the years. Read quite a bit of the MCRA documentation. So what was the genesis of this? I mean, how does it? How did it get started, and how do people use it? <laughs> It's actually a little bit of a funny
1: story. Um, so Ann Johnson, huge fan of hers, and she was my boss at the time, um, was speaking in front of um, a, a big portion of our field at one of our sort of you know get together internal conference events. And uh, she, uh, while she was talking, she said, "See that person over there, Mark Samos, You know, waved, and she's like, "He's going to build a cybersecurity reference architecture that will show how all our security technology works and connects with everything that y'all are working with." And I'm like taking a note, <laughs> and so that was that was sort of the genesis of it. And you know, it ultimately answered that that first most important question as as Microsoft, you know, built and you know got on this crazy train of cybersecurity and the massive portfolio that we've built up um, since. Uh, I think we put like a billion a year into it historically, and we're looking to to put another five billion in the next. No, $20 billion over the next five years or something like that. Anyway, it's multiple billions of dollars of investment a year. It's, it's insane. Um, but it, the, the first question that I answered um, at the beginning of that is like, what do we have? Right? And like, you know, what does that actually look like? And what are the different capabilities that are in there? You know, how do they relate? And so that was really sort of the, the genesis of it is answering that question. And then, you know, more questions came up over time.
2: So I've been watching um, several of the videos, and there's a lot of interesting information in there. Uh, Can you list uh, some of the topics addressed?
1: Oh yeah. So the the MCRA, for those that haven't seen it, is kind of there's like a a main menu slide with using PowerPoint zooms in the first two slides. Um, So there's two different pages of of kind of um, these interactive things you can click on. And so what we did is we decided that each of those sections they point to, um, you know, one to three slides, one to five slides kind of thing. Uh, we were going to record a video around each of those. Um, those are, you know, the MCRA videos. And so we cover, let's see, what are the the top ones? There's um, the big one in the middle is the people. Um, so that's, you know, like what are the roles and responsibilities? How are those evolving in today's world? Um, in terms of, uh, you know, the what are the jobs and how are they changing? And, um, you know, we got the new... Kind of thing emerging of posture management um, that's super important. That really complements a SOC on you know, sort of an operational function of security, but you know, focused on prevention rather than focused on you know reaction. You know, detect, respond, recover, kind of things. And so, kind of talking about that and the roles and you know how does you know how does security fit within DevOps and OT and all these other things. So the people one is is definitely one of the more popular ones. Um, the capabilities one, the original one. Uh, zero Trust user access is um, a big one. Um, you know, using uh, Azure AD conditional access, how do we you know, achieve that sort of Zero Trust approach to validating devices, validating users before giving you access to those highly valuable resources? Azure native controls is a big uh, popular one there. Um, that kind of covers all of the different all the different stuff in there um, that uh, is built in Azure, and then the other things that also help secure you know your access to Azure, the workstations you use, the the accounts you use, et cetera. Um, There's a, there's one on the multi cloud and cross platform. Um, so, like a lot of people think Microsoft just secures Microsoft. Um, and that's not the case. We secure AWS, GCP, Linux, you name it. I mean, we're a, we're a security company, period. Um, and so, kind of highlighting that. SASE, um, a lot of people ask, have been asking a lot of questions about SASE. What is it? How does it fit? How does it compare to zero trust? Um, OT, you know, how do I secure my operational technology, my industrial control systems or ICS? Um, you know, SCADA type of uh, technology. Um, security operations I mentioned earlier, and then you know we have some other ones that we threw some other diagrams in there that you know people tend to like around you know how our threat intelligence works, um, how um, how the different SOC uh, tools and components connect, um, how the the SOC components actually. You know, security operations components actually integrate with access control, so you can make sure people don't log in and get access to valuable resources when their device is infected. A little bit of the privilege access story to you know that's you know, super important. Protect the admins the ransomware, um, which is just you know devastating and highly profitable. Um, it keeps growing because of that. And you know the the whole zero trust uh, piece around, you know the rapid modernization plan. What do I do first, next, later? What does that look like architecturally? Um, so there's a bunch of different sequences there.
2: I always love the uh, people and process uh, portion that you have in there, and I always amazed. So how many uh, organizations uh, uh Maybe address the people uh, through training, but they don't address the process. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about this and and how um, it changes uh, when modernization uh, is happening uh, in a continuous basis?
1: The thing that I've seen is because you know security has always been sort of a technical um, discipline, or it started out as one. You know, there's a lot of technologists, a lot of people that just think in the frame of technology, right? You know, it's a problem, so therefore I'm going to apply a technical solution. You know, it's that old proverb of uh, if I have a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. But you know, that's you know, we have that challenge because you know, people are just familiar with, they're trained on technology, they're 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 recruited for and hired based on their technical skills. So we have this like massive technology bias in the security industry. But the truth is, we're protecting systems that, you know, uh, ultimately they're run by people. They're the value that they bring is to people. You know, that's what what the business is there is to serving customers that are choosing to pay. Um, so there's a lot of people involved in the process. I mean, you even look at you know the role of cybersecurity and um, and like geopolitics and whatnot. You know, ultimately that's a very people centric discipline of politics, right? Like, I mean, just people is just woven throughout it. And so, you know, we've it, the, for us to sort of succeed, you know, we can't be applying a technical solution to a process problem or a people problem. We, we have to be applying the right solution to the right problem. And we have to make sure that the teams, the security people on the teams, are getting what they need and they have the process to work together. I mean, almost all the organizations that I've worked with, if they're not now, they were, you know, within the past probably three to five years broken into a bunch of individual silos and they have no processes to communicate across them yeah we've we've seen a lot of people that get a lot of value out of that sort of you know this is how the, the roles are changing i've, I've actually heard uh, a bunch of stories from some of our folks in the field that you know that they use that single people slide and end up talking with the cio and CISO about strategy and people and roles for like two hours and never looked at the technology and never talked about a single microsoft product um just to you know just because that was what the organization needed was to help overcome that bias.
2: I know that you recorded uh, some of those videos like six months ago, but I I always uh, remember uh, the video talking about uh, the people in process where you were mentioning about accountability and embedding uh, security um, because that enables the processes uh, to be... uh, uh, updated. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more
1: about that? We ended up doing two versions, I think two versions of the videos uh, for those sort of people things. One was uh, for more of a technology audience in the MCRA one. And then we had, um, uh, we covered those slides in a slightly different view at that you know, full on strategic level that's more of like uh, CIO or CISO's uh, sort of level. And so we ended up covering that same slide in two very different ways. Not very different, but you know, overlapping, but different from the uh, what language we used, et cetera. Yeah, we, we found that it was it's really critical to understand, you know, at the very top of it, we talk about, you know, ultimately this is a risk, right? Security is a risk. It's it's something that, you know, the board management are used to managing risks and overseeing. Risk management, right? And so that's really the root of all of this, and that's the the huge frame that we should all be thinking about is, you know, what's important to the organization, and what are the risks that the organization faces, and we don't want to be coming at them, you know, these people that manage risks all the time, right? And coming at them with a whole different language, a whole different way of doing things, and and just expect them to magically understand it. The best thing for us to do as security professionals is learn what risk management framework they're using what language they're using how do they assess risks is it you know a certain scoring system or is it you know entered into a risk register when it's officially then managed and accountable by the management team etc like understanding that as a senior security leader is critical so you can plug into those processes and then all of a sudden the funding the attention etc that you need for security starts to magically appear because it is you know being managed like any other risk in the organization that people know how to manage um but really kind of having that language of translation we found is is super critical and that's that's something that we emphasized a lot in the CAF secure videos to make sure that that people understand hey listen this is unique in a special discipline but it's also a risk discipline that needs to be managed similar to how people are trained and used to and have processes and have funding to to manage
0: just on that topic of funding, I mean, is the, I'm not going to say is there guidance around how to get funding, but is there sort of hints and tips on how you can use this to explain, you know, how you can get funding for security programs? Yeah. I mean, I think the start of
1: it is speaking the language of the people that control the purse strings is the first rule, right? So that you understand them and what's on their plate and what's important to them and, Second, that you can speak to them in that language and communicate your your ideas and your concerns in, in a way that they'll understand. That's the number one thing we found, is really learning that language, learning the dynamics, learning the risks and priorities. That is the number one uh, piece, and of course, building the relationships, et cetera, Because you know, people make decisions, and so that that's that's it. And wh- when we talk to CISOs, oftentimes getting money actually isn't that hard. It's feeling confident that they could spend the money and then deliver on the results that come tied to that money um, tends to be a concern that we hear uh, pretty often. That like if they ask for money, they're going to get it in, in today's environment. Anyway, you know, time could, times could change. Um, well, it definitely wasn't that way ten years ago, fifteen years ago. You know, that that's that's one of the key things to sort of foundationally establish that, and, and some of the advice that we do give um, to sort of you know uh, CISOs and sort of uh, the folks around them and, and the business leaders around them is you know start thinking about how do you make sure that you're not actually distracting the security team with ongoing requests for funding, like how do you make sure that their budget is steady. And the, the paradigm that we sort of think of this through is like maintenance. Like we don't, you know, if, if I managed a fleet of planes or cars, I'm going to have downtime. I'm going to expect that I have to go and do maintenance and check things and change the oil and all the various other things on it. And that's just a part of owning that. And technology is actually quite similar. Like we need to be able to have some planned downtime in the schedule to patch it and to to take care of those things. Because if you ignore it, sooner or later it's going to break down, it's going to hurt. And that's pretty much the same dynamic that we see in security is if you don't patch for you know months on end, it's just like not changing the oil. Sooner or later, the system's going to break down, you're going to get owned, and it's going to all happen suddenly, and then all of a sudden, your schedule's disrupted anyway. So it's much better to sort of proactively plan that and integrate that in to your schedules, your budgets, and all that. And so that's, that's one of the ways that we're sort of recommending that organizations think about it.
0: So Mark, well, you and I both know that a couple of years ago, we spent some time doing uh, the security compass uh, which oh, yeah. was uh, yeah oh yeah that was <laughs> poor mark had to spend like two days recording with me but <laughs> uh, uh, so if people looked at that from a few years ago and they were they were to ask the question how is this different and why should I go and have a look at the calf uh, what what would you tell them what what is the distinction between those those two pieces of work that you did
1: the Azure Security Compass, um, which is a name we actually don't use, I think the official website is now called the Microsoft Security Best Practices. That was a it was a, it was a look at how do we um, establish very clear best practices. The, the the main burning concern at the time, the burning question was how do I secure my Azure infrastructure and resources? And so that was sort of like that first structured view of you know how do we do that um, as sort of like a standalone you know multi module workshop. That really sort of answered that question with a very heavy bias towards the Azure resources. Um, the the thing that's that's changed in addition to sort of the wisdom and, and knowledge and understanding that we've picked up since is. Um, The CAF is much more focused on an end to end view of the entire security program. Um, so it's not really cut down for just the things that affect your Azure infrastructure. It's actually focused on, you know, how do you actually structure your program right? What are the security disciplines, you know, your programs of record that you're going to. you know run over you know the course of multiple years and possibly de- decades and you know so it's really answering that that programmatic question from the calf we are actually in the process it's you know taking a while of sort of refreshing that and so we're we're, we're taking a look at how do we you know have a deeper end-to-end view because you know the Azure Security Compass got pretty detailed on the technology. How do we do that sort of on an end-to-end workshop basis? And so we're, we're actually looking at that now, kind of framed out using that CAF structure. Um, in the CAF itself, the disciplines are actually aligned to uh, the Open Group, um, and how and the Open Group is where Jericho Form started. Actually, defined the Unix standards back in the day, um, but it's an open standards organization. Um, and so we we borrowed the um, zero trust security components uh, from them um, because the way that it approached it was actually a, a, you know one of the, the most useful ways to to sort of structure that. Um, and so that's that's really you know that sort of end to end program view. And just for full disclosure, I am a co chair of the Zero Trust Architecture Forum at the Open Group, just so that folks know. Pretty easy to understand how those um, ideas um, were uh, were found on either side of the world.
0: So one thing we hear a lot about. Is SASE, Secure Access, Service Edge, and Zero Trust. So, how does all of this relate to those two? Let's just call them initiatives.
1: Let me start by framing out zero trust because there's like two different perceptions that we've seen um, out in the world at large of zero trust. One is that it's modernizing your access control. And if you ask an identity person, it's going to be identity centric. If you ask a network person, it's going to be network centric. But you know, there's there's a whole set of people that think of zero trust in terms of you know how do I modernize access control using either a heavy network or heavy identity or a combination of technologies. And then the the other you know forty or sixty percent, depending on, on how you measure it, of folks uh, are sort of look at zero trust as an end to end security strategy that has multiple different components, including access control, security operations, data center modernization, uh, OT security, and you know uh, all those kind of pieces. And so Microsoft is very much a proponent of um, zero trust as a larger big picture strategy. And the reason for that is that the same things that cause this modernization of access control, like, hey, we can't count on the perimeter, you know, phishing, um, attacks and cloud stuff outside the perimeter and mobile devices outside the perimeter and work from home and all this other kind of stuff, all those same forces that are making us go, oh my gosh, I need to reestablish access control in a way that works outside my perimeter. All that stuff is also influencing how we do security operations. I have to detect attacks and respond and recover to them outside the perimeter or, or inside the perimeter. Um, I have to be able to do all these other kinds of things inside and outside. So the same forces are also transforming pretty much all of security. And, and of course, the you know, SaaS services and the, and the cloud tools, um, based, cloud-based security tools. Um. So, you know, all these forces are basically doing that. And so that, that led us to say, you know, zero trust is more than just access control. It's the whole kit and caboodle. So SASE is, uh, is a very similar thing. And a lot of people sort of think of them as the same or similar, but um, over the, you know, it started out fairly high level. But what we've seen is that it started to f- come into focus in the past six to twelve months, as uh, Gartner has released more and more guidance on it, and more and more products are, you know, sort of kind of aligning to it. It's, it's become more clear what SASE is. The way that we're seeing SASE evolve is it tends to be aligned much more closer to that access control use case, um, and it tends to be very focused on uh, the network pieces. Especially as they relate to identity, because the service edge—the way that Sassy names it there—is a service edge. Is basically the edge of your enterprise, the edge of your technical estate. We used to call it the edge of the network, but you know, it's you know what we have is no longer defined by a network. So I call it a technical estate, for lack of a better term. And so that that service edge. It essentially is what SASE focuses on, you know, sort of from a cloud, a CASB uh, perspective, from the physical networks, like a secure web gateway and firewalls of service perspective, all these different um, types of technologies, you know, that define your, the edge of what you control and own and care about. Um, it's basically how do we make sure there's secure access to it, you know, that people can have a good performance for it. You know, and they can you know get it. It's cached around the world. Um, they include SD WAN, uh, software defined wide area network, as part of SASE, um, but also how do you do it securely through those you know security capabilities, like I mentioned. So SASE tends to be on the security side a subset. Um, it goes beyond security because it includes performance as well, and that sort of you know WAN based kind of things that would not normally be you know sort of a CISO or zero trust responsibility. But that's that's kind of where it fits. Is it's that you know how do I secure access control with this you know heavy focus on you know wherever your edge happens to be, network or otherwise? Does that make sense?
0: It does. This is going to sound like a really cynical response, but I mean, how long does it take to sort of? get all this, like to understand it, understand that big picture. Like, okay, SASE is over here, and Zero Trust is over here, and MCRA is over here, and here's what the Venn diagram looks like, and here are the tools that map into each of those areas, and here's research that's come from Forrester and Gartner, and here's research that's come from Microsoft, and here's stuff that's groundbreaking from Cisco. I mean, how long does it take to, get to understand that? I mean, is there a place that you can go that's like the... You know the this stuff, the security stuff, 101 to so sort of understand all this. There's so much, and there's so much information. And uh, I mean, do we feel like people understand this stuff? And that sounds really cynical, but I sort of want to look at it from a really practical and pragmatic perspective.
1: It's it, it's a it's a really good question, and it's it's tricky because there's so much to it, and quite frankly, there's so much money in our industry that everybody's trying to claim a piece of it and own sort of part of that intellectual space um, by framing it out in a way that favors them. And this is everybody from you know product vendors and marketing to analyst houses to, I mean, everybody is trying to help with this because it's a serious problem. Because security itself is complicated. And then everybody's trying to simplify it in a way that favors them. And so you end up having this sort of too many simplifications um, thing that ends up creating more complexity in the middle. So one of the things that we did do to try and help combat this is there's actually kind of a third type of recording that we did around the MCRAs. We didn't do it for every single module, but we did, I think, two or three of them. We'll include the links in the show notes where we deliberately focus the talk track on someone new to industry. So, that it would be easy for them to understand. Like, so say I'm an IT person, that's a career changer, or I'm learning about technology and security because I want to be in the cybersecurity, you know, high pay band. Um, so we actually recorded some of those, and they're called interactive guides, and they're sort of a, you know like an online computer-based training type of thing where you can click, you know, between each section and go back and all that kind of stuff. So we'll include a link to those because we actually tried to tackle some of that. I think we started with the people, the capabilities, and then. One other, I've forgotten which one. Just to sort of make it a little bit easier for non-geeks uh, like us to sort of ramp up on
0: it. Yeah, I, I think again, I've already mentioned this, but I've looked at quite a bit of the documentation over over the last few months. It's fantastic stuff, but at the end of the day, you've sort of got to grok it. You know, you have to understand. Okay, how do I apply this? Yep, great documentation is can be fantastic, but if it's not actionable, then basically worthless. Yeah, and that's actually where we did a lot of
1: investment into the RAMP, Um, so the rapid monetization plan, because we recognize that dynamic and we want people to have that sort of, okay, I just want to implement, right? Because that's one way to simplify it down. And, you know, said, okay, do this first, then this, then this, and then your second stage is this, and there's two steps in it. Your third stage has three steps in it. And just basically go do this. And then um, we're in the process of actually documenting each of those initiatives with very specific, hey, if you're doing it with Microsoft technology, here's exactly how to do it, and walk through that on our docs page. Um, So we're in the process of actually turning that zero-trust ramp into basically documentation that says, okay, just here's how to do it. And that cuts through a lot of the noise. So you have all the context, which is great, but here's what to do.
2: I agree with uh, Michael was saying on the complexity. And and when I look back, uh, many customers in the past used to look or acquire functionality and, and infrastructure to address a particular issue in the environment. And unfortunately, when this confusion with SASE, with Zero Trust, people start thinking, okay, do I have to invest on different infrastructure to deal with any, each one of these? And this, you could see it because people, when they... Um, Talk about ransomware, they think that is something different than uh, every other attack out there. Yes, there's a few things that are different, but not necessarily uh, start a different way than other uh, type of attacks. Do you want to comment a little bit about this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, The the easiest answer to ransomware, Um, I always start with this because it helps create clarity really fast, is defending against ransomware is pretty much the same as defending it against anything else because ultimately the attackers will do anything to be able to ransom you. Technically, they don't really care. They've copied techniques from the APTs of credential theft and pass the hash and pass the ticket and pass the everything else. Um, the phishing techniques they've created a few new ones that tend to be a hallmark of ransomware, like buying up commodity malware access. You know, you know, essentially, you know, taking a botnet or some other low-grade attack infection, and then you know, buying access to that and then using that as an entry point for ransomware. But pretty much ransomware is just as flexible as an Apt would be, because they're just trying to get control of the environment. And they're just making money in a different way. They're not stealing secrets or stealing data. Sometimes they are. Um, but they're extorting you by turning your systems off and you know, saying you can't get back to them without paying me. And that kind of also illustrates sort of the, the root of the complexity is you know, at the end of the day, security is trying to stop an intelligent human from finding a crack in your system. And because they're an intelligent human, they're going to find something in your complex technical estate somewhere, unpatch this, misconfigured that, poor operational practice, you know, logging with domain admin to an unsecure box, whatever. They're going to find something and abuse it. And you have to basically continually be burning down the risks in this huge 30 plus year old technical estate that was built when security wasn't even important. And so the reality is is security is by its nature very complicated, and it's forcing us to clean up the hygiene of IT that's been building up and lingering for decades. Sorry, I'm not sure if I answered the question. I kind of wandered off there for a bit. <laughs>
2: Actually, I, I like what you were trying, you were mentioning trying to stop. Uh, the other day I was having a conversation uh, with somebody uh, about the definition of security. For them, uh, when they were saying, okay, this infrastructure is secure, to, for them it meant that nothing could penetrate it. And I was like, I think uh, the focus of Microsoft is, is uh, what we said, assume compromise, uh, detect fast and recover fast, right? So I, I like the fact that you mentioned about us trying to stop. But I, the main thing that I was trying to convey in the uh, previous question is that, For the most part, the infrastructure used for ransomware, for zero trust, for SOC modernization is almost the same. There's some capability that maybe SASE uses that is different from zero trust, but it's not a complete separate infrastructure. As long as... Uh, organizations uh, start interconnecting and working in a zoom compromise type of uh, approach. Detect fast, recover fast. I think they are able to deal with many of these security issues that all these uh, sassy zero trust, etc., are trying to deal with.
1: Yeah, that's that's actually an excellent point because. Uh, And that's, that's a hallmark of Microsoft's approach because we're not a, here's one simple tool that can assemble one simple problem. And it's all simple until you actually combine it with all your other simple tools. And then you have a hundred simple tools and it's not, it's not simple anymore. You know, we're actually doing that hard engineering work to, you know what, instead of giving you six or eight, Or ten different types of detection tools, we're going to give you. We're going to do those kinds of six or eight or ten or twelve different detections, but we're going to put it in one or two portals, right? We're going to consolidate that, and we're going to connect it, and we're going to link it, so you don't have to do that work. You can just turn the tools on and go. And we're going to connect it to your Azure AD, and then you can just use that and go. You know, there's a lot to it because we're kind of explaining how it all works. You know, a lot of technical people want to understand that. But the actual operation execution is a huge focus for us to simplify at Microsoft because we don't want people to have to do, you know, we have, what, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of customers or whatever it is. We don't want ten or 100,000 different individual analysts and engineers having to figure out how to do the same manual task. We want to do that once automate it, and then our entire customer base can benefit from it. Um, And so that's a huge, huge focus to help make it simpler and easier. A huge reason why we invest so much is to try and solve those problems and solve them once.
2: So that goes directly to a question. I have seen a lot of organizations trying to uh, develop a solution to uh, share threat intelligence, and I think they're missing The point that uh, Microsoft is already having uh, one of the best and most complete threat intelligence uh, information out there, and we are reusing it to simplify detection response uh, to the different attacks. Can you comment a little bit more about that?
1: Oh yeah, hundred percent agree. Like I saw some studies out there. I don't remember where they were. That effectively, when you go and take all these different paid intelligence feeds and this, that, and the other, you always you always end up with a lot of overlap. You kind of have a diminishing returns as you get these new different sources, you know, out there, you know, from different vendors and whatnot, because they end up you know reusing the same sources behind the scenes, etc. And so, yeah, you know, that, that's sort of like one of the dynamics a lot of customers are facing. And of course, it's very difficult to integrate multiple different feeds to multiple different tools, et cetera. And so, that's that's a a good example of where Microsoft has invested to kind of make that problem go away. You know, we get 24 trillion signals a day. I think is the latest statistic. Yeah, somewhere around that. And then, of course, we do all the machine learning and reasoning over and this and that, turn that into like normalized baselines and these are the anomalies that stick out and behavior analytics that say these are the, 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 the behavior anomalies that stick out, et cetera. Um, but ultimately, you know, we have a massive set of Threat Intelligence that allow, that's built right into the tools. Like You don't have to manage it, you don't have to integrate you don't have to configure it's just there. And that's, that's one of the things that we do is build that in there so it's sort of like an ambient set of knowledge that's just built in to, to all the tools and then you don't have to go through that. Every organization has unique needs, right? So if you're in FinServe, maybe the generic Threat Intelligence, once you sort of integrate that in or use our tools... Okay, that's that's fine and good, but I need to get to maturity level four. I'm at three, and you got me to three easily. Great, but now I need four. There's always going to be a need for sort of localized stuff. What you've been attacked with, what your industry's been attacked with, that might not be the exact same thing as you know every other industry out there. So there's always going to be sort of a little bit of uniqueness. Sort of the. Um, I sort of jokingly say it's like the, the the frosting on the cake that says "Happy Birthday, Bobby." You know, most of the cake is identical to every kid's cake, but you know this one says "Happy Birthday, Bobby." So there's there is a genuine need to do some personalization on threat intelligence, but the bulk of it is going to end up being fairly common across companies, industries, etc. And so we've done a lot of work at Microsoft to to kind of make that problem go away and make you know the bulk of the problem go away so that's that's an excellent point
2: yeah, I like the um, sample that you showed in the threat intelligence and c a video. I don't remember which attack uh, you used, but uh, it was some somebody-
1: emotet, if I recall yes. correctly.
2: Yes. Yeah, so, uh, it was, I, uh, somebody got an email uh, with, uh, uh the emoted and they didn't even realize it because the threat intelligence, uh, was using the backend, uh, to, uh, perform a lot of different investigations and, and response. This is the value that we're providing with embedded threat intelligence and signals from cross, uh, services. So I, I, I was happy about that.
0: Oh
1: yeah, it's, it's such a powerful story. I mean, we can't do this every time to every single thing, but you know, we basically, you know, the first variant that existed of this particular you know, Trojan, it was a Gmail on a Windows app, and you know, so it was like you know, right at the edge of sort of the stuff. It wasn't even the enterprise things. But we picked it up, did the ML, the detonation, et cetera, and deleted it before the person could ever run it you know, within 400 milliseconds. And so this person was automatically protected, didn't even get interrupted. And they were the and they would have they're the would-be victim of the very first victim of of this brand new variant of a, a banking trojan. But the ML and all that just took care of it automatically. And I'm like, that is the pinnacle of where we're trying to get to in as many scenarios as we can.
0: So I have to ask, just because of my background, is there a sort of a secure software development aspect to any of this? Yes. So Within the MCRA, it's it's a little bit of a
1: limited exposure. We've got the SDL links and all those kind of things. We've got the GitHub advanced security highlighted um, in a couple of places. So, you know, there's definitely some mentions within the cyber reference architecture. But the the thing about the, the DevSecOps and, you know, security development lifecycle sort of space is it tends to be very heavy on people in process. You know, there's definitely tools involved uh, 100%, but there's a lot of people in process and training and awareness elements of it. And so what we actually did in the, um, the CAF Secure methodology, because there's five security disciplines, access control, security operations, Asset protection, security governance. And then the last one is innovation security. Um, we named it innovation security instead of DevSecOps on purpose because we also want to be able to accommodate the emerging, not we want to be able to accommodate not only DevSecOps, but also the emerging discipline of citizen developers, things like power apps and low-code, no code types of apps that are really starting to ramp up in volume. They're small, but they're growing very quickly. And so what we did there is we actually put in uh, two different pages in the CAF Secure methodology. The first one is innovation security, what it is, how it works. You're really kind of highlighting that we need to bring together the different teams. We need to, the business and the developer folks. We need to bring the ops together, You know, the, your DevOps um, kind of combo. But we also need to have that safety and security built in as well. It's like having a car without seatbelts or brakes. You're not going to drive it very fast, right? You want to have that assurance and that comfort of safety and of course the reality of it as well to feel comfortable to have that you know speed and agility to go and you know capture new business opportunities etc so we we built the innovation security kind of focus on those kind of key themes and when you do the security don't just think about developer and developer processes which you know most appsec people will think of and don't just think about infrastructure you know and, and the and the actual you know build servers and the and the workstations and all that that an infrastructure security person would think about but think about both of And so we introduced a lot of themes like that and addressed um, a lot of those elements there, and how do you sort of bring um, all the goodness of the the SDL and SDLC type of things um, into the age and speed of DevSecOps. And so that's the first page. And then the second page, we focused um, on specifically what kinds of technical controls to put into um, your DevSecOps process to sort of support those principles and those high-level ideals. And uh, we actually work closely with uh, Victoria Almasova, very talented uh, person um, that uh, has been working on DevSecOps stuff for uh,
0: for a long time, and she heavily contributed in that section as well. Funny you should mention about DevSecOps and infrastructure people and what have you. One thing I've been doing a lot recently with customers is talking to them, and this isn't really security related, but just something I think is really important is talking to customers about their ops people understanding cicd pipeline tooling mm. so for example i've been giving a lot of chats to you know it folks about Visual Studio Code and infrastructure as code, and using Azure DevOps or GitHub. You know, all of a sudden they've got these new words added to their lexicon around <laughs> you know, pull request and diff and all that sort of stuff and pipelines. And the and the joke is, you know, we're sort of talking about tooling that is very familiar to developers that may be relatively new to IT folks, but you've got to know it. And if you don't know how to feel comfortable in front of Visual Studio Code, for example, integrating with GitHub, making edits to Terraform files or ARM templates or Bicep files, and creating a pull request, you kind of have to know all that stuff. Again, it's not really security security related, but you you know this is a great example this this intersection of Dev and Ops. Um, we're just adding we're adding Sec in there for for security. So yeah, I've been spending a lot of time with customers, like talking about that sort of stuff of of like.
1: yeah, it affects security as well because security can't function unless they understand the processes they're trying to secure. The last thing you want to do is like say, okay, we patched the server. Well, great, the CICT process just went and unpatched it automatically on the next build. Like you know, you, you don't want to be in that situation. And so, it's really important to sort of understand and embrace it. I've learned that, like the the DevSecOps space, is almost like a microcosm of everything else you have to do in the security program, just focused on a workload at a time at high speed. Um, You know, kind of learning that that environment around you and applying the principles. Everything from the appsec to the to the infrastructure elements and the identity and access control and the monitoring, like all that stuff applies to the DevSecOps space um, in miniature at speed. And so it's, it's it's a really fascinating space
0: yeah I love it again you know this is sort of tools that you know, I'm used to using for for a long time and um, a lot of IT folks are kind of a little bit scared you know when you all, all of a sudden they're sitting in front of visual studio code with a a whole bunch of infrastructure is code in front of them and they, they don't understand how to do things like pull requests and that sort of stuff so
1: yeah I actually had I had a personal version of that because um, I've been doing a lot more work in the doc site lately right and so the, our doc site, for those that don't know it, Microsoft is actually built on GitHub. And so we have pull requests and, and um, all those kind of things and branches and repos and, and all that. And I had to learn at least the basics of that, which is very overcomplicated in my opinion. But I had to learn the basics of that just to be able to sort of edit and do docs um, work and you know, get some stuff into CAF and, and the MCRA site and all these others. Um, and by the way, for those that don't know anyone can submit docs changes at Microsoft. So if you find something that's wrong or you want to add something, you can just hit the little pencil edit icon and do that. But yeah, I I live that experience.
0: Yeah, actually you bring up a really important point there. You know, docs.microsoft.com, like you say, is all hosted in GitHub. If you see an error, just go in and just either A, you know, create an, you know, an issue that we can be that can be tracked or actually, go and make the edit, go make the edit yourself, and create a pull request, and uh, someone can review it. I'm always making edits, you know, to docs.microsoft.com, especially when any of the documentation like you know refers to sort of cryptographic elements like SSL rather than TLS, or they're using a certificate for signing because you don't use a certificate for signing; you use the private key for signing. <laughs> just, just you know, silly things like that. I mean, they may seem silly, but. You know, little things like that just make the documents better. So, uh, so yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. I didn't even think about that. The fact that you probably had this little baptism of fire as well. You know,
1: yeah. And as an architect, I was extremely frustrated. I'm like, my God, there's a simpler way of doing this.
0: Well, there is. that nah, there is, but it's not as tightly controlled. That's that's the problem. You want to make sure that. You know the 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 right edits are being made by the right people and stuff. And it has to go to the
1: nth degree of detail. Yeah, you're right. I mean, but it just you know, I'm like, can I get a simpler version of GitHub? Like, just overlaid
0: where you don't expose all the complexity, please. (laughs) No. Um, Yeah. So I know I don't need to tell you this, but I'm you know every every time we do a podcast, we always ask you know do you have a final thought? So what would your final thought here you'd like to leave our listeners with?
1: Um, the big thing I would recommend is you know don't get too intimidated by the complexity um, and also make sure to take advantage of all the sort of supporting elements within the cyber reference architecture and you know, the CAF Secure that we put in there. We've documented a lot of this and the reasoning for it. So take the time to read through that. Um, the slide deck itself there's um, we, we talked about on the videos that are associated with it for the MCRA as well as for the CAF secure methodology there are extensive slide notes within the MCRA and you can also hover over all the different you know product names and different you know boxes all over the the slide deck and it's got a little short description of what the heck the thing is so it's it's definitely a good learning tool there so don't get too intimidated by it and just take your time you know learn it one piece of a time and if you get any feedback, you know, happy to take it. I'm out there on Twitter and LinkedIn; uh, pretty easy to find with a fairly unique name.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. When I was, in fact, whenever I'm consuming any kind of large amounts of data or you know, documentation, same with the MCRA, I'll you know, I'll set aside like an hour a day and just you know bite off an, an hour, and then next day bite off another forty five minutes. Next day, bite off fifty minutes. You know, that's it's the old adage, right? It's like how do you how do you eat an elephant? You know, one bite at a time. So, yep. uh, so yeah, and it's good. You know, it's good stuff. Thanks a lot for that, Mark. That was uh, really insightful.
1: Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll see you in a couple of weeks, right?
0: Well, let's uh, let's bring this thing to an end. I would say thank you, Mark, but you're going to be here in a couple of weeks anyway. So, but to all our listeners, thank you very much for listening. Stay safe out there, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SetPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.